I invite you to open up your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 53. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardcover black one under a chair in the row in front of you. You can find Psalm 53 on page 475 of that Bible. You know, one of the more difficult aspects of joining a new church is learning the songs that that church sings. About five years ago, when I first started attending CEPC, I had to look up and concentrate on the lyrics of the songs because so many of them were new to me. And so many of the songs were songs I'd sung before, but maybe with a new verse or a lyric change here and there. And I had to, to focus on the changes of those words. They were familiar and yet in some ways different from what I'd sung before. In, in a lot of ways, that's the feeling that we get when we call, come to Psalm chapter 53. And to anyone who's familiar with the book of Psalms, you'll likely read this psalm, which we'll do in a second. You'll read this and think to yourself, I've heard this before. Why does this sound so familiar? Well, as it turns out, Psalm 53 is nearly identical to Psalm chapter 14. Except for a few word differences here and there, and one significant change in verse 5, which we'll talk about later, both these psalms are identical. And yet, God has made space for both of them to exist in the book of Psalms. The Holy Spirit, as he guided David to write both Psalm 53 and Psalm 14, inspired him to write the same words twice. On top of that, the Apostle Paul quotes these two Psalms later on in Romans chapter 3. So we have three separate chapters of Scripture, all repeating the same thing, which of course should make us perk up and pay close attention. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce adds this, that anything God says once demands our attention. Anything he says twice demands our most intent attention. How then if he says something three times, as he does in this case? This demands our keenest concentration, contemplation, assimilation, and even memorization. So let's read the text now and see the truth that the Holy Spirit desires for us to hear three times So hear now the word of the Lord. You take heed to how you listen. To the choir master, according to the Mahalath, a maskal of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There's none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. And it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. Yes, even this chapter of scripture, as hard as it can be, is given to us in love for our good. As we walk through the text this morning, we're going to use just two headings, radical depravity and radical grace. If you're familiar with Calvinism or Reformed theology, you likely read this text and instantly saw connections to the doctrine of total depravity, or is it sometimes called radical depravity? 
You're not wrong to make those connections. You know, this chapter really is one of the main proof texts in all of the Bible for this doctrine of total depravity. This doctrine that describes how sin has infected every area of our lives. How we are born enslaved to sin and naturally bent towards evil. This doctrine that speaks to our total inability to redeem ourselves or to do anything by our own efforts that could ever merit God's favor. Psalm 53 is one of the proof texts to prove that doctrine. And yet, I don't want you to see this psalm as just a proof text. While it will have plenty to say about our sinful condition and our rebellion against God, we need to not lose sight of the fact that this psalm is a prayer. It's not a systematic theology textbook, but rather a prayer. A prayer that was meant to be sung by God's people to remind them of key truths about who we are and how we've rebelled against God and what needs to be done about our sinful condition. Look at the heading of the psalm with me. It says, To the choir master, according to the Mahalath, a maskal of David. So this means that this psalm is a prayer that was meant to be sung in worship to God. The people of the Old Testament would have known the melody, the Mahalath, to sing along with it. And they would have sung this song, this, sung this song with regularity. While we're not singing this psalm this morning, we should still take it up and read it and consider it today and this week and seek to apply it to our lives just as we would any other text of Scripture. So don't think of it as simply a, a theological proof text. See this psalm as a deep prayer. And a deep prayer that God, in the course of redemptive history, has answered. So let's consider our first heading, Radical Depravity. David writes in verse 1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. So David begins with this discourse on a generic person he calls the fool which is a rather common description in, in the Bible's wisdom books, the books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and many of the Psalms. These sections of the Bible regularly contradict the foolish and the wise, the, the wicked man and the blessed man, those who deny God's existence and those who submit to him as Lord. You know, children of this church, I know this summer you've been working with Miss Tess and Miss Kristen and Miss Angela to memorize Psalm 1. Think about Psalm 1, which talks about the blessed man and the wicked man. That language is not just in Psalm 1, it's all throughout the wisdom books, and we see a version of it here in Psalm 53. So David is describing the fool as the one who says in their heart, there is no God. There cannot be a God. It's not possible for there to be a God. Perhaps you know someone like this. Perhaps you know someone who, who, without a hint of doubt in their voice, claims that there cannot be a God. That there cannot be a God who created all things, who providentially guides human history as he sees fit and requires things of his creation. Perhaps you know someone who claims things like that. Perhaps you were once like that. Or perhaps if we were to really probe your heart, you would agree that there is no God. If that's the case, I, I really am thankful that you're here this morning. As you can probably guess, this sermon is going to talk a lot about sin. It's going to talk a lot about our, our natural inclination to rebel against God. I promise you, not every sermon that you'll hear at this church is like this. But you should know that we aim to be as balanced as the Bible is balanced. 
So when we come to a passage that talks about our sin and our rebellion, we're going to talk about it as well. So if that's the case, if you say there cannot be a God, I'd invite you, please listen closely. Listen closely to the words of this psalm and what God's word says about you and your sinful condition and your standing with God. Listen to these words. So David is talking about the fool. The one who says in their heart that there is no God and and the denial of God in their hearts leads this fool to also deny God with their entire lives. In the second part of the verse he writes, they are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is no one who does good. So the posture of the fool's heart makes a difference in their actions. Their lives have been corrupt because of the posture that their heart takes. Jesus says in Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You might rephrase that in Psalm 53 to think of, for out of the abundance of the heart, our whole lives speak. The fool, in verse 1, for them, their, their outward actions point to the inward reality of their heart being cold and dead to God. Now there's an interesting play on words happening in verse 1 of this psalm. As David is talking about the fool, that's the Hebrew word Nabal. And Nabal is not just a Hebrew word, it's also a Hebrew name. Specifically, it's the name of someone that David interacts with in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So earlier in David's life, before he would have written Psalm 53, he was out in the wilderness with several of his men, and they had need for shelter and food. And nearby the area of the countryside where they were, there was a husband and wife named Nabal and Abigail. Now, Nabal's name literally means fool. Could you imagine if that was the name your parents gave you? You walked around introducing yourself, hi, I'm fool. But that was his name, and and his life matched it. He was a fool. He acted foolishly in 1 Samuel 25. David sent some young men to go meet with Nabal and ask him for shelter and for food and for supplies. And Nabal selfishly turns down David's request. Now, we don't have time here to get into the specific details of this chapter of Scripture, but this would, make, this would have been a terribly offensive and insulting gesture to make against David. You know, later on in the chapter, David even says that he was insulted, greatly insulted, by Nabal's foolish actions. Nabal's wife, Abigail, in contrast to her husband's foolishness, she is described by her great wisdom and compassion and kindness towards David. She not only provides David and his men with what they need, but she promises to do whatever she can to help protect their lives. And there's a sad ending to that story, that when Nabal learned of his wife's kindness towards David, he was so overwhelmed with anger and hatred towards God and God's people that the Lord actually struck him dead with a heart attack. Nabal is a, such a sad picture of folly. He was so opposed to God that he couldn't even spare some extra bread or wine for David and his men. This is the sad reality of all who deny God, who live their lives opposed to him, who fail to obey him and submit to him in any way. Clearly, Nabal had some level of skill in business, or he would have never become as wealthy as the, the text says that he was. But despite his earthly success, he was a fool. And he foolishly failed to acknowledge God and submit to him as Lord. 
And so this is what David says next in our passage, is that all mankind naturally fits this definition of a fool. This isn't just atheists or obscure Old Testament characters. All of us, every last one of us, without the supernatural grace of God in our lives, we could be described in these terms. Look what David writes in verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. So in verse 2, God is depicted as being up in heaven, looking down on mankind, searching for someone who has true wisdom and seeks after God. Now, when we picture this scene where we're thinking of God looking down from heaven, it's not as though God is looking for something he can't already see. Right? We know of God's omnipresence. We know of God's omniscience meaning that God is both everywhere and he knows everything. There's nothing that can be hidden from God. So when it says that he looks down from heaven, this is using human terms to describe what God seems to be doing from David's perspective. And in these verses, God is overviewing the totality of his creation, looking for someone who understands, but as he looks down on the earth, he sees nothing but depravity. Look at verse 3. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So God's diagnosis of humanity is that all mankind have fallen away. The totality of their being has been corrupted by sin. When he writes they've all fallen away, this is speaking of the inherent righteousness or the lack of inherent righteousness of mankind. This would have been a legal term, speaking of our right standing before God. You know, if we said that someone had perfect righteousness, we'd mean that this person is perfectly sinless and is able to stand before a perfectly holy God. And we see throughout the Bible that this perfect righteousness is only gained by perfect obedience to God's law. Think of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But of course, none of us have perfectly obeyed God's law. Even just a a cursory glance of the Ten Commandments would prove that we've all fallen short of God's standard of perfection. But then if you take it a step further and look at the whole of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus applies the Ten Commandments and says that our perfect obedience isn't just measured by our outward conformity to the law. It's measured by the attitudes of our hearts. Meaning we can sin in our hearts without ever moving a muscle. So God looks down from heaven and his diagnosis is that we've all fallen away. We've all failed to reach this level of perfect obedience that's demanded of us. And then God describes humanity as corrupt. Now the Hebrew word for corrupt means soured, as in soured milk. Now when you and I open a gallon of soured milk, you know in an instant that the gallon has been ruined. You can't just skim off the top and then pour the rest into your cereal. right? Soured milk is soured throughout. And so, is, so it is with the condition that God finds man in. Utterly corrupt, spoiled, and soured throughout to the point that not a single person does good, not even one. Now while verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 53 are written from God's perspective looking down from heaven, verse 4 is written from David's perspective on earth. 
He writes, Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon upon God. David here is mourning the actions of those whose rebellion against God has taken the form of warfare against God's people. So he's not, David's not exempting himself from radical depravity that's experienced by all of mankind. Rather, he's simply mourning the way that God's people have experienced the effects of this depravity. David says that these attackers who are attacking God's people have no knowledge. They have no knowledge of God. They are the fool in verse 1, and they deny the very existence of God. And so their lack of knowledge about God has led them to do to use the phrase from verse 1, abominable iniquity. They're attacking God's people. David says that this lifestyle of rebellion is so natural to them that it's as comfortable as eating a slice of bread. They're comfortable in their sin. But while they might feel comfortable attacking God's people, their comfort doesn't last for long, and it certainly will not last come eternity. Verse 5, David writes, There they are in great terror where there is no terror. You'll recall that Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 are identical except for verse 5. So when this verse appears in Psalm 14, it's meant to serve as a comfort to God's people. They're being attacked by the enemies of God, and yet God provides them a word of comfort. It says in Psalm 14, 5, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You can imagine the ancient Israelites being attacked and reading these words that God is with the generation of the righteous. They would have taken great encouragement and comfort in the fact that God is with them. While the attackers of God's people are in great terror because they know that their end is doom and destruction. That they're, they're up against the people who God stands with. So Psalm 14 would have served as a great comfort to God's people. But Psalm 53, the focus changes. What's in view here is the judgment that's coming for those who live in rebellion against God. Let me read all of verse 5 now. There they are in great terror where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. So the picture we get in this verse is that of judgment that is coming for the enemies of God's people. Just one verse ago, they seemed so comfortable to be attacking Israel, but here the enemies suddenly find themselves in great peril. Pastor Richard Phillips comments, panic overtook Israel's enemies when there was no adequate human cause for it. But if that has been so when there was no cause... How much greater the fear will be when sinners are confronted by the enormity of their transgression before the presence of a thrice holy God. The enemies of God are described as having great terror in times of peace. They fear an earthly attack, but the reality is an earthly attack is the least of their worries. A greater judgment is coming for them. When the judgment day comes at the end of time, They will be put to shame. And as this verse says, they will find that God has rejected them. They've been found radically depraved, radically opposed to God. Now, it might be helpful here to pause for a minute and think a little bit more about the doctrine of total depravity. 
or to use a term I also find helpful, radical depravity. Dr. James Anderson is a professor at RTS Charlotte, and he defines radical depravity this way. Since the fall, humans are enslaved to sin and by nature bent toward evil in every part. So ever since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, right, the story when Adam ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ever since that moment, all mankind is born naturally bent towards evil and sin in every part of our being. This is the case, of course, because Adam, as the firstborn of all creation, stood as our representative. As Adam fell in the garden, so too did the rest of humanity fall with him. The most helpful illustration I've heard for this is the idea of a light switch. My oldest son, Levi, has grown tall enough that he can reach up his hand and hit every light switch in our house, including, we discovered this weekend, the garage door opener. He can reach it all. So when he walks into a room, he hits the light switch and the lights turn on. But it's not as though Levi, as a four-year-old, has his own contract with Centerpoint Energy to provide energy for the switches he touches. Right? I'm the one who signed the contract for our power bill. I'm the representative of our family to the power company. Levi, as a member of my family, just gets to benefit from the contract that I signed. Which also means that if I ever fail to pay our power bill, and I fail to uphold my end of the contract, Levi will also feel the effects of my mistake. In much the same way, Adam in the garden stands as the representative of all humanity before God. He's our representative. So when he fell in the garden, we all felt the effects of his sin. Indeed, we are all born with original sin. We inherit it. And that is true of every human being descending from Adam. We are born sinners. It's true of every last one of us. It's true of your pastors. It's true of your Sunday school teachers, children. It's even true of your parents. Every last one of us is born in sin. Which is exactly what the first five verses of Psalm 53 are pointing us to. This reality that we are all radically depraved. We've all inherited sin from Adam and we are all enslaved to sin in every part. Not only have we inherited sin from Adam, but we've piled our own sin on top of that original sin. So we're born guilty and we add our own guiltiness because of our sins. All of us have sinned daily in thought, in word, and in deed. It's at our core. It affects every area of our life without exception. Now remember for a moment that Psalm 53 is quoted later in the Bible in Romans chapter 3. So Paul quotes from Psalm 53, then a few verses later he writes this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. Because of our sin, we can never measure up to what God requires. While God is thrice holy and sinless, we are radically depraved and full of sin. Friends, this is the diagnosis of Psalm 53. In some ways, this should leave us feeling feeling helpless. When we come to terms with the sinfulness of our sin, we should find ourselves wondering, what are we to do with this sin problem? 
If we really are totally depraved, if none of our works could ever earn our own salvation, then what are we supposed to do about it? And this, my friends, is the exact reason why we need a Savior. In spite of our best efforts, our supposed good works could never measure up to God's requirement of perfection, for even our best efforts are tainted with sin. This is why we need a Savior who can stand in our place. We need someone who is perfect, who's sinless, who has perfect righteousness. This is why we need someone, as the Shorter Catechism puts it, who was descended from Adam, not by ordinary generation. And this is what David is praying for at the end of our psalm. This brings us to our second and final heading, Radical Grace. So after considering just how radically depraved we are, David knows we need salvation that can only come from God. So this is his prayer in verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. He recognizes his own sinfulness, his own need for a Savior. He cries out for help from the Lord. He cries out for God to send a Savior, someone who can reconcile us back to God. And he prays that the salvation would come from Zion. The salvation, David would have known this, was actually promised right at the very entrance of sin into the world. Just after the fall of Adam in Genesis chapter 3, right after they'd sinned and brought sin into the world, God speaks this word of judgment to Satan. He says this to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In this verse, we get this promise that one day the son of the woman, referring to Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. This is a, this is a turn of phrase that means death. If you bruise someone's head, it means they're going to die. So if the offspring of Eve is going to bruise the head of the serpent, it means that Jesus will kill Satan. And then it says, you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you've ever had a a foot injury, it hurts, but that's something you can come back from. So this is referring to Jesus' death on the cross, and he died a real death, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again on that first Easter morning. So this promise of Genesis 3.15 is is carried throughout Scripture, where God's people have been reminded again and again and again that God will provide a way to deal with our sins. You know, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, this, this looked like the sacrifice of animals on behalf of the sins of the people. But the sacrifice of animals was never enough. They needed a greater substitute to stand in their place, which is exactly why David is praying for salvation to come from Zion. This is the location of the temple in Jerusalem where these sacrifices would have taken place. And even those sacrifices of the Old Testament are meant to point God's people forward to the salvation that would come from Christ. Richard Phillips comments, the temple of Mount Zion, with its sacrifices for sin, taught God's people to look for a Savior. A Savior whose substitutionary death would cleanse from sin. Earlier I read from Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I actually stopped reading midway through that verse. 
midway through the sentence. Let me, let me read the totality of it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Yes, we've all sinned. Yes, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But for those who've been united to Christ by faith, we have been justified by radical grace. In the courtroom of heaven, we have been declared justified. Our sins have been wiped clean. We are made right with God. We've been reconciled back to him. Not because of any work on our part. Not because of any of the works that we have done, but as a gift. As a gift through the work of Christ on the cross, given to us by radical grace. Our salvation is a gift from God, who sent his son Jesus to be our propitiation to be our substitute, to stand in our place. Meaning that the wrath of God that we all deserved has been placed upon Christ. He bore it in our place. He suffered the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, and he's given us his righteousness that he earned through perfect obedience to God's law. Whereas we are radically depraved, Jesus Christ is perfectly holy and righteous. He never once sinned, and yet he died in your place, and by faith he gives you his righteousness. Friends, if you look at the, the last phrase of verse 25, it says, to be received by faith. You cannot earn this salvation. You cannot do enough good works to secure it. This salvation must be received by faith alone, in Christ alone. So receive Christ by faith today. Trust and lean on Him alone for your salvation. It says that there's no other name by which you can be saved. You can't be saved by your own works. You can't be saved by your own efforts. For even our best of efforts have been tainted with sin. We'll continue to fall short of God's glory if we keep trying to earn salvation through any other means. Instead, I urge you today, trust in Him. Cling to Him by faith. Let today be the day of salvation. Let me read David's prayer once more from verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of His people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Rejoice and be glad. This is the application of Psalm 53. This is where the rubber meets the road. We are, as the people of God, to rejoice and be glad. Now you might say, my name isn't Jacob and I'm not a citizen of the country of Israel. But of course, those are phrases meant to include all of true Israel. That is, all who've been rescued and redeemed by Christ. This is another way of saying, people of God, Rejoice and be glad. We're included in the promise of Genesis 3.15. We're included in this salvation that God has provided through Christ. So let us rejoice, let us be glad, for salvation belongs to the Lord. And by his radical grace, he has given us his son as the propitiation for our sin. To put it simply, as we contemplate and meditate on the doctrine of total depravity... 
Our response is not to mope around in self-pity. Our response should not be just to, to think about how terrible we are and leave it at that. Rather, we are to rejoice and be glad in our Savior. Rejoice and be glad in the salvation that has come for sinners like me and sinners like you. Rejoice and be glad that God shows his love for us in this. As Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, it's true what Psalm 53 says about our radical depravity. But this Lord's Day, I urge you to dwell on the radical grace that's given to us in Christ. For even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Dear Christian, Christ died for you. He died in your place. So rejoice and be glad for the salvation that is ours in Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we confess once more that we have sinned against you and done what is evil in your sight. We have turned aside from you and failed to understand and submit to your will. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet we praise you for the justification that is ours in Christ Jesus. We rejoice in the redemption purchased for us by Christ's atoning death on the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that you've sent your Son and put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Lord, we rejoice and are glad in the salvation purchased by Christ. Remind us of the beauty of the gospel this day. Amen.